0: Our natural inclination in response to pain that we see, whether that be pain nearby or pain far away, our natural inclination is to insulate ourselves from it. Our natural inclination towards uh, the sin that we encounter, whether that be uh, something that someone has done to us just once or perhaps something that they've done to us repeatedly, is to want revenge. It is to strike back. That's our inclination. We encounter such things, pain or sin. And, and that inclination oftentimes oftentimes brings with it a realization. We, we want to be merciful. We want to respond in a different way. And so we try. And we fail. We want to be merciful We fail at being merciful. And what we begin to realize is that there is a coldness within our hearts. A distressing coldness within our hearts. Here's the harsh reality, a sobering reality. The reason that we are not merciful is because we do what we are. I am not merciful because I am not merciful. You begin to grapple with that and it begins to chill you and sober you and then it raises some questions, well then what do you do with that? Do you then just ignore that call to mercy? Or is there another option, is there another way, is there something else, another voice perhaps that we should be hearing? If you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing in our study in Matthew's Gospel, and in particular the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular the Beatitudes. We are in Matthew 5. We've been moving incrementally through these Beatitudes, and we are in verse 7. Uh, The the Gospel of Matthew is the first of the four Gospels that we have. The first of the the books of the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. Matthew 5, that's uh, where we are right now. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. That said, we are honing in on verse 7. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be Glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for these words we need to hear. More than we know, we need to hear. They would not be here uh, if uh, we did not need to hear them. In fact, we can be so bold to say this morning that because we know There is not a thing in the course of the workings of this universe to say nothing of our individual lives. If we're here this morning, we need to hear this. Such is the intentionality and the purposefulness with which you work. We uh, thank you for the songs that we have sung already, the texts that we have read already, And we ask now that your spirit would work here in this uh, brief study, in this extraordinary passage. In your name we pray. Amen. Every one of us needs advice. Every one of us needs counsel of varying kinds at uh, various times of our lives. Why? Because life is very complicated. And also, there's not a one of us that is omnicompetent. I hate to burst your bubble, but I love you, but it's just true. You're not. Uh, So what that means is that's that's why we have experts that we consult and go to and and get their opinion and get their input. They've got training. They've got experience. And so we pay them. Doctors and lawyers and uh, physical trainers and financial counselors and uh, counselors and contractors and, and even those tech support people. Yes, even them. But where do you turn when you, when you need the counsel, when you need the advice, when you need the input? How do you know who to talk to, and in particular, when the stakes are really high? When the issues are of the greatest importance. Say along these lines, having to do with the meaning, the purpose, and direction of life. Who are you going to listen to? Anybody? I would commend to you the one who made you. The one who made you, who came as us, for us, to save us, and so who knows us and feels for us beyond our fathoming, and who, by the way, is also with us. I would commend him to you, Jesus. And it is that Jesus, that very one, who is speaking these words that we call the Beatitudes. These eight statements regarding these descriptions, regarding the Blessed One. Now, those of you who have been a part of this series know what I'm about to say. I'm about to define what that means because we have to stay very clear on what Jesus means when he says, Blessed are the, and then you fill in The blank. Sadly, some translations even go so far as to say, or paraphrases go so far as to say, happy is, and that's just ridiculous. It's just way off the mark. That is not what Jesus is describing. He is not talking about feelings are great. God gave us our feelings. God gave us our emotions. Okay, That's part of what it is to be human. But Jesus is not giving us an assessment, a description of the happy life. In fact, there's a lot of rough stuff as you move on through to get towards the end of these beatitudes, that would not lend itself to be a description of the person that is happy. Rather, what Jesus is saying here is he's not giving us a subjective description of of feelings and one's emotional state or experience, but rather an objective description of the person that is most to be, the type of person that should be admired and envied And imitated and emulated. He knows that we're we're bent towards doing that. He knows that we have a propensity towards looking towards others that we look up to. And he's saying, fine, let me tell you what kind of person that ought to be if you're going to follow me. So he's giving us this objective description of, of that kind of life and that kind of life's experience and what it looks like. And, and by the way, as I said at the very beginning of this series some weeks ago, each of these eight, each of these Beatitudes, is meant to be part of a package deal. Each of these things should be describing all of us. We don't get the liberty of picking and choosing which one of these we would ri- like to be uh, typifying us. That's not the way it works. And in fact, also, one other thing is, I said last week, each one of these things builds upon the one that goes before us. There, before it, there is a cause. And effect. There is a logical progression as you move through the Beatitudes. Jesus is laying out a path, if you if you will, so what it looks like to follow Him. In fact, I guess that's what we could really sum this up by putting it this way. Jesus is showing us the path that our lives should take. And he's making very clear here in verse seven that part of that entails being people of mercy. Being people of mercy. And we need to heed and pursue this. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? How does that flesh itself out? Three diagnostic questions I want to use here that we've used already in this series. I want to use again here today to get at what would this mean? What does this look like? What does it mean when Jesus says this, As he, what he says in verse 7? So who is he speaking of? Who is he talking about? Who are these merciful ones? Also, The second question, why? Why are they described in the way that they are? Why are they said to be blessed? It's worth knowing. And finally, how? How can this be true? How can this be said in any real way of us? So who, and then why, and then how? So who is this? Who is Jesus speaking of here when he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. These are individuals who see the needs around them the way he does. These are people who see the needs around them with His eyes. They see the way that He does. They have a true understanding. They can see the deep source of suffering and need. They can also trace its course, that is to say where it's going. And because of that, with that all in mind, they have great sorrow in their heart for what they're seeing there before them in this need. They have a true understanding of the needs that they are seeing. They also have a, I'll put it this way, a full understanding. They can see in the pain and the misery of the person that they're witnessing the affliction and they feel something of that. They can see there in in the pain and the suffering, the sin and the guilt, the burden that this person is carrying. And they feel something of that affliction and that burden, whether it be material or spiritual suffering that the person is, is feeling. So they see the needs, as Jesus does, and then they address them in a way that he would have us to do. A definition of mercy, see, you understand, is, is not, it's not just um, an emotional flash of just feeling bad. Or feeling pity, it doesn't. It, it begins there, but it doesn't stop there. It is a, a a outer expression of a deep set compassion for this other person and what they are experiencing. If it's physical duress, if it's physical suffering of some kind, they then come alongside with help and relief. If it's spiritual suffering of some kind. They then come alongside either with a, a granting of forgiveness or a sharing of the message of the gospel or and or both. Wounds are bound up and mercy is shown. It's simply dependent upon what kind of need we're talking about here. So who is Jesus speaking of here when he says, blessed are the merciful? He's saying these are folks who are not addressing the need with some soft little Band aid, but rather coming in with something solid. They are walking. These are people who are walking in the footsteps of the God of mercy and the Father of all compassion. These are people who are fo- followers of Jesus. In fact, his disciples. In fact, who by the one. By the way, and if this is true of every one of these beatitudes. And I've said it a few times already. I'll say it again here this morning. Again, Jesus, they are followers of the one who alone perfectly models and exemplifies the words that he's speaking here when he says, blessed are the merciful. He is the merciful one. Indeed, he is the embodiment of God's mercy himself. In fact, if we look at Jesus' life, we see this, this feeling of compassion and pity and sorrow for the person in need and that then impelling action, we see it again and again in his earthly ministry. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. This is how he saw the crowds. Matthew chapter 14. This is not the first time Matthew says this, but I'll, I'm just going to read this particular uh, quote. Matthew 14:14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and healed their sick. And if you keep reading through that that paragraph, you see, and this is what actually compelled the feeding of the 5,000, was that pity and that compassion on the crowds, on the masses. And then if you read one more chapter over, chapter 15, it's almost the exact same wording in describing what impelled and compelled his feeding of the 4,000. Jesus moved to action out of compassion. And in fact, uh, turn with me to Matthew 20, um, last week we looked at Mark's account of Jesus' healing of Bartimaeus, that blind beggar. But well, listen to Matthew's account of that same event. It's a slightly different perspective, but it's, it's, it's worth noting with the way Matthew t- explains this and lays it out for us. Matthew 20, starting in verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, it would seem that what Jesus is telling us here in the Beatitudes, when he says, Blessed are the merciful, He's saying, go and do likewise. As you have seen in me, go and do likewise. Now, by that, of course, he's not saying go and work a divine miracle. That's, that's not the point. He's saying don't go and, you know, gin up a divine healing in and of yourself, but give help. Give help. That's why, even, even as a church, we, the, the deacons have pulled together these mercy packs. It's why we have the, the mercy fund that we do. It's why we participate in the fuel ministry. It's why from time to time we collect mercy uh, relief offerings. It's why as individuals we should have our antennae up and asking of our neighbors, and I mean that literally, how can I help you? Because we're called to follow Him. The merciful one, and to be merciful ourselves, merciful ourselves. But go and do likewise, and that's the not just with material needs, but spiritual needs as well. Now it's not to say, of course, when he says go and do likewise, he's saying, Oh, offer them eternal pardon. No, because we can't do that. But we can we can grant forgiveness where there's been a relational rift, can we not? talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes, but I mean this is what it means in terms of how we should be responding a response of mercy to the person who has insulted us. To the person who uttered again that thoughtless, careless remark. Mercy. Mercy towards the person who, who broke their promise again. Who betrayed our confidence and trust Again, I know there's all kinds of nuances and things to talk about because that does get complicated, but the essence of the response, the heart of it still has to be whatever the practicalities and pragmatics that you know are worth talking about come out of that, still yet our heart's response has to be that of mercy. Because we are following the merciful one who has shown us oh great mercy. This is the path that Jesus has shown us. This is the path we are to walk on. We need to heed and pursue this. Which takes us to the second question, moving from the who, who are they, these merciful ones, to why? Why are they described in the way that they are? Why are they said to be blessed? Why are these individuals the ones that we should be emulating and uh, imitating and envying and and following um, in their example? Well, what does he say? blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now that's not in its context, it's not they shall receive mercy from other people. It's they shall receive mercy from God. Why? How does that happen? Well, please understand, it is not not that our showing mercy to others is then the cause or the grounds of God then showing mercy to us. It's not what Jesus is saying here at all. It's not some kind of exchange program. It's not a a, a bargain. It's not a contract. It's not a quid pro quo. I had to look that up. It sounds like a fancy term to throw out here at you. It's a Latin term that means basically in exchange for. It's a deal. You know, some kind of thing where, okay, to the extent that I am merciful to this other person, God will then be merciful to me. Now think with me about that, the implications of that. Can you rest if that's really the way the deal works? We are every one of us in dire straits if that's the way this works. Well praise God that's not the way it works. It in no way, in no way is Jesus saying here that our mercy shown towards others is the grounds of his mercy towards us. It's completely reversed. It's rather our mercy shown towards others is the fruit of his already having shown mercy towards us. It is the result of His mercy towards us. It is the overflow of His mercy already experienced and embraced towards us. Let me put it this way. Um, it is we experience, we come to have, receive God's mercy through our faith and repentance. Okay? That's how we come to experience His mercy. That faith and repentance then proves itself the mark of genuine Christian faith and repentance. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Nothing but the blood, as we sang just a little while ago. A mark of that kind of faith is mercy extended towards others. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's a mark of that. I'll oh, put it that way. put it this way: the more we're growing in Christian maturity, the more we will be moving towards people in need. So whether spiritually or materially. the more we're growing in spiritual maturity, the more we will be moving towards others in need. So why are they said to be blessed? Blessed. Why are the merciful said to be blessed? Because they shall receive mercy. They are growing in their understanding of the mercy that they have received, and they are extending that mercy towards others. Now, that said, there is a warning element here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. This is hardly the, I mean, this theme of mercy in the Gospel of Matthew is a a repeated one. Matthew chapter 18, uh, this is in the context of actually verses 15 through 20, where Jesus is telling us about what forgiveness, what, what, well, the call to forgiveness, the command to forgiveness, what that looks like. Then from that, Peter hearing this, because he's a little nervous with what Jesus has said, he's he's hearing what Jesus said, and so then Peter comes with a question, and in answer to Peter's question, Jesus tells this story that we often know as, refer to as the parable of the unmerciful servants. I'm going to pick up where with Peter's question, verse 21, Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him, as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. As I had mercy on you, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What do we do with this? We hear what Jesus says. That's what we do with this. It has often been said, and wisely so, that Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, they should be the most forgiving people in the world. Christians are also, if I can put it this way, the best supplied people in the world. We should therefore then be the most generous people in the world. The most merciful in the face of whether it's material need or spiritual need, the quickest to say, yes, I want to help. I'm moving towards that. Mercy begets mercy. Mercy received begets mercy. We are never free to say, of a person, whether in material need or spiritual need, that individual is not deserving. And so I'm going to hold back. My friends, where would we be, you and I, if God had treated us that way? None of us are deserving. None of us are deserving. And so none of us can hold back in that, in that sense. And I have a couple of thoughts, just quick thoughts that um, spring from this. First, first An explanation. If in any poor way any of us live as merciful people, that is only a work of God's grace in our lives. That is only because we have embraced the mercy of God and therefore we are able then to extend mercy to others. So praise be to the Father if we are merciful at all. That's the explanation. Here's the warning component. If there is no even poor sign of mercy in our hearts towards those in need, materially or spiritually, we have a question to ask ourselves. Do we know His mercy? Do we know it at all? That's not my teaching. That's Jesus's. So if you have a beef with that, take it up with Him. He's showing us the path on which he intends for us to walk. We need to heed this and pursue it. But does that that not then lend itself towards a, a, a last question, a final question? Oh my goodness, how then can that be true of me? Okay, we've looked at who this is. Who is Jesus describing? What does it look like to be merciful? What does that entail? Uh Why? Why are they described in this way? As being the blessed ones. But how can this be true of us? How, perhaps, could we grow in becoming merciful people? I'm going to say something very similar to what I said last week. Not verbatim, but basically it's the same. We start at the beginning of the Beatitudes and work from there. We start at the beginning we trace upstream. We start with this. Our spiritual poverty. Our spiritual bankruptcy. That we have absolutely nothing but our sin to bring to the Father. That's we, where we have to begin with the first of the Beatitudes. And then we move to the second one. We are mourning that. We are grieving that. That, that reality that we know of ourselves. As our chests have been cracked open and we're forced to reckon with this. And then we move to the third beatitude, and we've come to realize our meekness, and grow in meekness, in terms of how we regard not just ourselves, but others, and responding and engaging with them. And then we're moving to that fourth beatitude, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So, put it this way, the holy discontentment about ourselves. Longing. Longing that we would be walking in His ways yet more. And so then that takes us to the humility about ourselves and others that impels this mercy. We start at the beginning and then we let it flow out from there. So when we see, when we are confronted with the failings of others, we find ourselves increasingly being tender and patient towards them. Much slower to our pride and arrogance that is our natural bent and much quicker to say but for God's grace that would be me. And when confronted not just with spiritual need and burden but with material needs and burden the troubles not just the failings of others but the troubles of others we find ourselves to be the more we're grappling with God's mercy His mercy towards us. We find ourselves being increasingly sympathetic towards the troubles of others. Much slower towards our natural inclination of condescension, looking down on them, and much quicker to say, again, "But but by God's mercy, but by God's grace, that would be me. That would be me. So how do we how does this become true of us? I would simply say this, simply, simply. <laughs> start at the beginning and let it flow from there. Let the spirit do his work. Start at the beginning and let it work from there. Or if I can put it this way. Breathe deeply daily. Breathe deeply and through the day. Every day of his mercy and grace to you, such that then you can breathe it out towards others. Breathe it in deeply, such that then you can breathe it out towards others. My uh, wife, Sarah, can tell you that uh, she can most often tell what I've had to eat that day without even asking. I will come home at the end of the day and greet her for lunch. Excuse me, greet her in the kitchen. That's why I make the lunch. But anyway, greet her in the kitchen. And without even asking, I don't know how many times this has happened, she will say, where'd you go for lunch today? Um, Most often it has anything to do with purple onions. It's not even my breath. It's it's my pores. There's something about it. Perhaps some of you, more of a science bent, can explain to me, why is this? But it would seem, I mean this quite literally, that um, what I take in comes out. What I take into me seems to just flow right on out of me. just exudes. See where I'm going with that? It's true of all of us. And I'm not talking about food now. I'm talking about messages. Messages we take in. Breathe deeply of the grace and mercy of God to you, that then you might be able to breathe it out towards others. Ask yourself this question, I mean, honestly. What have I? What have I? What am I that I do not owe to God? What have I? What am I? I do not owe to God. That is a pride crushing, sanity restoring question. It will pull the roots out from that condescending spirit. We find ourselves facing material need and want to, you know, that knee jerk way we have a way of of asking we'll ask something like this, how could he let himself get into such a situation? It'll pull the roots right out of that. It'll pull the roots right out of that arrogant, prideful spirit that's so naturally, it's so bent towards saying, how could she have done that to me again? It pulls the roots right out of that. You know what the answer is to both those questions, by the way? How could they? How could could he? How could she? The same way me. (laughs) The same way I could and would and do. Christ has shown us the path. This is the path we need to heed and pursue. I want to end with this, the marks of mercy. How would we know? How would we know that we're actually... um, living in line with what Jesus has in mind here. Uh, It's worth noting that all the Beatitudes are uh, unnatural, every one of them. They are unearthly. They are inexplicable to the watching world. They are, um, oddly enough, it's something of a paradox, winsome on the one hand, but unsettling, on the other. So much so that any of these can uh, bring forth not just a feeling of, of people being disturbed, but even resisting and opposing it. And Jesus says as much at the very end of the Beatitudes. That's where the logical progression takes you. So, what would be the marks then? What would be the, might be some of the marks that we are actually living out this mercy, whether in the face of material or spiritual need, it would stand out. It would have to stand out as looking looking so different, so much deeper, so much richer than anything else the world has to offer and to give. And, and it just might be opposed and resisted by the world as well. Some of you are familiar with the uh, great story Les Mis, Les Miserables, rather. Victor Hugo's great old story of... Uh, Inspector Javert, uh, his relentless manhunt of a criminal named Jean Valjean. Uh, Valjean goes into hiding uh, after to avoid being captured by Javert, who is just absolutely bent on returning him to prison. After many years of guarded living, you know the story. Towards the end, uh, Valjean finally has the opportunity to be rid of his pursuer, to be rid of his oppressor, um, these rebels, these French rebels actually have captured Javert, and Valjean has the opportunity to finally do away with him. But instead of doing that, he frees him. He, he lets him go. Well, that doesn't deter Javert one bit. In fact, it seems to increase his the intensity of his desire to bring Valjean in. And ultimately, he corners him on the banks of the uh, Sen River, and Valjean assumes, now at this point he has met his end, Javert has got the gun pointing right at him. Uh, he, he looks at him with this uh, expression of furrowed frustration and says, you are a real problem. And orders him to stand at the edge of the concrete precipice there overhanging the river. And uh, Valjean asks, understandably, uneasily, why aren't you taking me in? And uh, Javert is very upset by this. He crossly commands, you are my prisoner, do it, I tell you. Then he goes on to say, you don't understand the importance of the law. I've given you an order, obey it. And now that loaded gun is aimed at Valjean's chest. And so he obeys and he turns. He can't see Javert at this point, but he can feel the barrel of the gun resting up against his cheek. And he figures he really is done. But Javert still wants to talk. He's puzzled. He's disturbed. He says, why didn't you kill me? Harkening back to earlier. Why didn't you kill me? Valjean says, I don't have a right to kill you, but you hate me. Javert declares, I don't hate you. I don't hate you. Javert then threatens, you don't want to go back to the quarries, do you? Valjean shakes his head, and Javert says, well, then, for once we agree. I'm going to offer, I'm going to spare you a life. I'm going to spare you a life in prison, Jean Valjean. It's a pity the rules don't allow me to be merciful. And the barrel of that gun is corkscrewing now in Valjean's cheek. And he's thinking, okay, this is this is it. But, in a tone of resignation, Javert says, I've tried to live my life without breaking a single rule. And then without warning, he drops his gun, he undoes Valjean's handcuffs, he shoves Valjean Valjean to the ground and declares with frustration, you're free. But that's not all. To Valjean's astonishment, Javert handcuffs himself and throws himself into the river, unable to live in a world where the law is tempered by mercy. Now why do I tell you that? Just to kind of spice things up here at the end? No. What am I saying? That if our mercy is outlandish, otherworldly, misunderstood, and maligned that it just might be the kind of mercy Jesus has in mind? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Would you pray with me? Lord, indeed, the mercy you are calling us towards is outlandish and otherworldly and misunderstood and maligned just as you are. Your pity and compassion towards us compelled you to action which needs to then be the beginning of ours towards others. We pray that you'd help us to trace the steps, to trace through the Beatitudes and let it flow that we would be poor and mourning and meek and hungering and thirsting and so then merciful. We ask that You'd help us to see people as You do, in their material needs and their spiritual needs, to see them as You do and respond as You do. And thank You for the privilege of participating in Your work in their lives. In Your name we pray. Amen.